Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 18 of Renar Voice. My name is Robert Swatala, and I'm one of the co-hosts of this podcast. And with me, my co-host, Jeff Mazzone. How are you, Jeff? Hey, Robert. How's it going? I'm doing good. So I was preparing for this, and and I just said it there. Episode 18. Does it? It doesn't feel like it, but wow, that's that's. We've been doing this for a little bit now. We've been going. Yep. Surprisingly, going. right? I know. Yeah, it's great. And we always say that, like, wow, we can't believe they were still doing this. But, uh, you know, this episode that we're doing today, this is one of the first things that we wanted to do. Yep. Yes, And I, I think it was a matter of time of finding just the right person. And I, I think we did. Yeah, I think this is a, a topic that um, is a much needed topic. And, you know, it's interesting the way God has moved in this podcast, because when me and you sat down and kind of thought about what we wanted to do, um, God has placed guests, experts on every one of those topics. And that's mm -hmm. really, really cool to experience um, that we have that opportunity. And, and hopefully our listeners have enjoyed the, the hearing those experts talk about those various topics. Yeah, and that's the whole purpose, right? Like we get just slammed with so much good content in the course of our education, but uh, we don't often get a chance to sink our teeth into some of the some of the topics. So that's kind of what we're doing. And with this topic in particular, I think you and I uh, approach, you know, this area uh, w with our own history in relation to it. Yes. And, and that's something that you and I haven't really shared too much on the podcast, but we will soon when we interview one another. <laughs> uh, but I, I mean, it's a topic, especially in our world that is so saturated and obsessed with sexuality, I think in the not in the fullness of what it is. The fullness yeah. of the gift that it is so yeah i think it i think it's time that we tackle this topic yeah it is i think and in, in, and hopefully our listeners will hear that this is i believe is is a major issue that needs to be addressed and that certainly the world is not addressing it and i think the church could do a better job at addressing it so um i'm really excited today because uh we're going to be talking about sexual addiction compulsive sexual behavior and we have a great guest to, to share with us jeff could you introduce dr thomas for us yeah so today we have dr john c thomas who is a licensed professional counselor and supervisor in the state of virginia a certified sex therapist, a certified sex addiction therapist, and a certified substance abuse counselor, as well as a residential professor at Liberty's Department of Counselor Education and Family Studies. He holds a PhD in counselor education and supervision and a PhD in organizational psychology, two PhDs. His specialties include sexual dysfunctions, sexual addictions, betrayed partners, marital problems, depression, anxiety, anger, and trauma. He is trained in EMDR by its founder, Dr. Francine Shapiro. He has authored numerous publications, books, and textbooks, which I have here because everyone who takes 505, uh, the counseling techniques class, uh, we read from his book, Therapeutic Expedition, and conducts with his wife, Denise, marriage enrichment retreats, and he speaks on mental health and organizational issues. So, Dr. Thomas, we are so honored to have you here with us today. Thanks so much. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, Dr. Thomas, thank you for being here. Um, you know, we had talked offline uh, a little bit just about this topic, and I know it's a broad topic, and I know that we could probably have a couple different podcast episodes on this, but just to get our listeners uh, a better understanding, can you share with the audience 
what exactly is sex addiction, uh, also known as compulsive sexual behavior? And also, how did you become uh, or become interested in becoming a certified sex addiction therapist? Well, um, we're dealing with a controversial topic, actually. Um, there has been a lot of debate um, since the term was coined by Dr. Patrick Carnes back in the 80s, um, that it does exist, and then others who say it doesn't exist. And I obviously believe it does. I believe the preponderance of research and evidence supports the fact that it does exist. In terms of what it is, um, there's really a number of ways you can describe it. One of my favorites is it's a pathological relationship with sex, that that sex that is supposed to be um, covenantal with you know one spouse, that is God has boundaried it within marriage, um, but even within marriage it can become an addiction, and that's something we can talk about if you want. But um, my favorite definition is a thirsty man craving salt water. You know, it looks like the real thing. It, it's sure gonna look like it's gonna satisfy, and yet it's dehydrating you with every sip. And yet the next time you're thirsty, you're gonna go right back to that salt water. Even to the extent of coming to the point of not liking real water. And that's one of the interesting things. Real sex um, kind of falls away as this pseudo-sexual um, relationship with pornography or other women or men or whomever uh, increases. Yeah, I love those those two definitions. Um, that that really helps to kind of explain what it is. Can can you share with us some maybe some of the statistics so that we can get an idea how relevant uh this is in, in especially in today's society? It's actually very disparate numbers um when you look at it. Um the ICDM -M, the International Classification of Diseases, I think it was 11, um actually added hypersexual compulsivity disorder to their list of diseases and disorders, not in DSM. But the numbers they were going to use originally in DSM was about three to five percent, which is like so low um, from my experience. There's some studies that put it up um, to about 30 million people or, you know, up near 10 percent even. So the numbers are really varied. Um, there's two types of kind of sex addiction that might be impacting it, um, the numbers. One is there's what's called the classic sex addiction, which is usually somebody that's had um, a sexual trauma in their own past. Um, and so the profile has kind of been the one in the 80s and, you know, well, with actually occurring <laughs> down through history. Um, but the contemporary sex addict is pretty much uh, porn pornography and pretty much internet pornography. And so there really is kind of this two kind of part 
piece to how sex addiction is looked. And certainly there's can be crossover from one side to the other, because many of the classic sex addiction people are using internet pornography and cyber sex and many other things. Now that technology allows for that, even virtual sex, um, people are getting addicted to. Dr. Thomas, how did you get involved in sex addiction therapy? Well, you know how things evolve. Um, the first thing that got, I kind of got interested in was sex therapy, because in my um, master's program, um, they never talked about it. And so, um, you know, other than it's for marriage, you know, the real basic stuff. Um, and then I started when I was seeing clients, um, I would get um, people with sex dysfunctions and whatever. And so I decided to pursue that. Um, one of my courses in my doctoral program was on human sexuality. And just to give you an idea, because all I, it's a long answer to that question. That's why I'm kind of rambling. But um, when I took that class, the first two classes, which were it's a block schedule like we have at residential, three hours. However, we watch pornographic films. Um, now, for some of the younger people, this was on reel to reel. It wasn't a VHS. And at the end of the second day. The professor who knew I went to Liberty said, so Liberty graduate, what do you think of this? And I don't like to be singled out. Um, and so I said, well, I guess I don't have to go through the, the sewer to know it smells. And that kind of began my interest, um, not just in sex therapy, but sex addiction. And then um, that was about the times uh, Parnes was really uh, kicking up his talks on it, which was the like 88 or so and um, into the 90s. And so I started going to workshops on, on that and sex therapy. Um, and I had when the Internet first came out, I got addicted. I mean, it was not intentional. If I don't know how much you guys know about the early days of the Internet, but you would click on something just a anything you know you're looking for uh, a lawnmower and pornography would just pop up and the more you clicked off the more it would pop up now eventually they stopped that but you know the whole time you're being exposed to this stuff and um in my young days i never got pornography but <laughs> my early uh, gateway was uh, the department store catalogs that were sent to the house. And I remember as a kid, I was looking for the toys to give my parents the list of what Jesus would want me to have for Christmas. And um, I stumbled on it and it was like, oh, but I didn't know much to do with it, but that planted the seed. And, you know, somewhere or another, sex becomes one solution um, to one's unmet needs, issues, struggles. And so it kind of developed and it was in the um, late uh, 2000s, I decided to pursue the sex addiction um, certification, but I couldn't really start it then. It's not a cheap one to get because um, you need a lot of supervision. You need even more for 
sex therapy. Um, so uh, it wasn't until like the mid, uh, like around uh, 2014 or something that I went through the CSAC training, which is the gold standard, if you will, kind of training in uh, sex addiction. Um, it was started by Carnes, and the organization is the International Institute for Trauma and Addiction Professionals. I said that slow, um, just so people could kind of digest it, but it's called IITAP, the International Institute of Trauma and Addiction Professionals. And they offer several certifications, but their, their main one is Certified Sex Addiction Therapist. And in Lynchburg, I'm like the only one right now within a two hour plus radius. I, I get calls from Greensboro, North Carolina and um, other places who wanna come and see me just because they know they should see a certified sex addiction therapist. So um, it's really a niche um, for individuals who are you know, looking for um, something where you don't have to know everything now, you should learn as much as you can about everything early in your career, um, but where you really want to be a specialist, um, because the numbers of people going for help far out exceed that 10% or 24 million, 300 million in the United States, far exceed it. Um, I don't have a person in my um, internship class that hasn't had at least one case with it and um, numerous ones even with female sex addicts so the numbers are are just up there to where having that certification helps dr thomas just a, a quick comment for the sake of continuity and then and then a question if i may our previous guest uh anna zicardo who is robert's uh practicum and internship supervisor she had mentioned dr patrick carnes and his book uh the betrayal bond so yeah, it's great just to hear, you know, that that his theory, his his work, it can be so widespread, but in the area of trauma, but also here in in the area of sex addiction. The trail bond, in my opinion, is Karn's best book. It it really was the early foray into trauma bonding, um, which term now is seeming to pick up some notoriety in terms of people kind of hearing about it. Um, but it is a great book. And if readers are looking for a book to really understand a little bit more of the psychodynamic piece to it um, and how trauma connects people, that's definitely a great book to read. Yeah, I love that. Thanks for that. And I did want to ask as well, Dr. Thomas, you had mentioned the idea of um, that we can use sex to pursue uh, unmet needs. And you mentioned earlier that, you know, sex addiction is not just something outside of marriage, but can be very much present in marriage. I'd love to hear more about that, just what you've seen in your experience, what you've read in the literature and in the theory about how sex can be a false attempt uh, at, at trying to meet one's unmet needs, what you've seen and, and how that works. Some other descriptors that people use for sex addiction, that it's an intimacy just attachment disorder and so there's various you know attachment rooms which are you know obviously trauma to some level 
and um, as traumatic, they impact the brain early on. Um, but it's not just getting bad stuff to happen to you. It's not getting enough of the good stuff happening to you. You know, the nurturing and um, all the parts that, you know, God designed for us to have, um, you know, as children growing up. Um, but in a broken world, it doesn't happen. And so individuals, you know, look to meet needs, um, whether it's from neglect or abuse, they look to meet needs. And even, you know, kind of the quote unquote good Christian who waits till their wedding night to um, have their first sexual experience doesn't mean that they don't have all the makings of a sex addiction um, going into that. And um, I could tell you one case of um, a guy who lived close to his home. He worked in very close proximity. His wife worked at home and he would come home every day at lunch. And the wife had become so conditioned that she would just go upstairs, take her clothes off, wait for him to come up, have sex. Then he would get dressed, go have a sandwich and leave every day. Um, and that's compulsive, obviously, behavior. But, you know, if you were to sit down with the guy, well, no, I've only had sex with my wife. And that sounds really good, but it's not that, it's how. It's the process. It's, it's what it means. It's the agenda that's associated with it. And so that's the real rub in it. So, again, in marriage, usually crossing the bounds of marriage, but it can go either way. It can go both ways. Dr. Thomas, thank you for that. And, and you kind of opened up a, a, into the next question that I want to I enter into. Um, you talked about, you know, many Christians, you know, maybe that may be waiting, you know, for their marriage day uh, to, to start that relationship in a, in a biblical way. But certainly Christians are not exempt from this. Uh, it is a problem that I, I think does not discriminate between believer, non-believer, age, sex, race. It is a universal addiction, a universal problem. But I think in in sometimes in the church and, and many Christians believe that sexual addiction is maybe a moral problem or a sin problem. And, and the answer is just simply stop doing it and or maybe just pray more or, you know, just uh, repent. And those are all important things, but can you share why it may not just be as simple as just simply stopping? Well, I would imagine that everybody in the counseling program has seen that uh, classic video with Bob Newhart, stop it. Um, if you haven't, type it into YouTube and watch it. It's one of the funniest things you see. Um, but yeah, nothing is that easy. Um, I'll just relay a personal story. Um, in the, the 70s, when I was going to um, you know, middle school and high school, I heard sermon after sermon after sermon about lust, how terrible it was, whether it was a sermon in church or in the youth group. And so you become really, I wanted to honor and follow God completely. I'm very concerned about that. You know, I'm a 14, 15 year old guy in a very conservative independent Baptist church. And um, I remember just struggling in my school 
um, had over 2,000 in my high school and mini skirt days. And I remember going to one of my youth leaders who was single. He was probably in his young 30s. But, you know, at that time, it seemed really old. And uh, I went up to him and um, I just like I couldn't get it out. Mr. Uh, Mr. Uh, Brewster, um, could you talk to me for a minute about something? He was always a gracious guy. So we went to the corner and said, what is it? And I stumbled to get that out. I said, I'm, I'm just having trouble with my thought life. And he went, that's sin. And then for the next 10 minutes, I kind of got a biblical lecture on it being sin. And so he prayed with me at the end. And I got up and walked away thinking I am the worst Christian in the world. Well, when I went to Liberty back in the early days, my roommates and I decided we were going to apply the formula for thought life. And that is prayer and Bible reading and fasting. So we began on a Monday. And the idea was if you had a lustful thought, you were going to drop where you were and read a chapter out of the Bible. And you were going to pray. And of course, we were fasting for the first week of it. And uh, I was coming down to my first class in the morning, and one of my roommates, Rick, was sitting over by a rock reading his Bible. <laughs> I pointed at him and laughed, and uh, within a number of seconds, I was going over and opening to Genesis chapter 1 myself. And uh, I joked we read through the Bible in about a week and a half or something like that. And we would come back at, you know, at night and say, why is this not working? What's wrong with us? Because we're doing the formula, you know, and nobody explained that um, that there's a whole lot more going on. Well, when I was uh, still a student, we had a, a huge tent where DeMoss is, if anybody's ever been to the campus. And that was our big class. And all the religion majors met in male religion majors met in there. Pastor Falwell sat up on the stage and talked to us for a bit. And then he said, I'll take any questions you want. Well, thank God for this guy. I wish I knew who he was. He went up to the mic and he said, Pastor, um, you know, we're young college guys and um, we struggle with our thought lives. You know, what do we do with that? And I was like on the edge of my seat, but I knew what he was going to say. It's sin. And he went, men. If you're not struggling with that, go to the counseling center. There's something wrong with you. And I went, what? <laughs> huh? It just didn't fit the message that I had been getting. You know, and I remember telling, uh, this was a different year, but I telling my roommate, I said, the evangelical Pope has spoken. You know, if you don't struggle with this, there is a problem. Now, certainly lust is sin. You know, um, having sex outside of your marriage is sin, but the why of the sin and what's behind the sin isn't always, you know, poor character. Um, it's not as simple as willpower. Our willpower actually in our soul is very unreliable and not strong enough to help with habits of any kind. And I mean, we all know that. Um, and so, you know, much more is needed and certainly a connection to God. But we were praying, we were fasting, we were reading the scriptures and nothing. Um, 
And so had somebody, you know, even at that early age sat down with me and said, look, you know, there's some stuff you're trying to fulfill through this stuff and how you think and what you fantasize about. And if, you know, we can come to understand that, maybe this will go away. But nobody did that. I just kind of got the moral lectures. And so, you know, the tendency kind of evangelical is sometimes to get it away from sin. But it's still sin, right? Uh, the behaviors are. However, it is also a psychological issue, not just a spiritual issue. And it's a physical issue because it deals with the brain. And once the brain is kind of crosswired to do this stuff, um, it just works on autopilot. And we don't understand why. Yeah, Dr. Thomas, thank you for sharing that. Um, there's so many different things that that I could comment on there, but I think I think one of the things, uh, and I've had the opportunity to uh, lead a recovery group in this, and you know the the point is, you know, we talk about this this topic of insanity, you know, doing the same thing over and over and expecting mm -hmm. different results, and 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 I see men that um, are able to compartmentalize this piece of their life where they're they live in in high integrity. Uh, in all facets of their life, but this is an area that they struggle with. And, and, and no matter how, how much they white knuckle, no matter how much they make that that promise that they're going to stop, they continue to go back. And, and I've seen time and time again how the church sometimes pushes uh, those men into isolation because they feel, I can't tell anybody because... Um, nobody would understand, or I'm going to be condemned or whatever the situation is when really, I think what reach research has found is it requires connection. It requires accountability. It requires, you know, going to counseling, all those different things in order to break free from this. And certainly there is a spiritual component, uh, to it that, that God will transform and God will do a lot of the heavy lifting and, and renew, um, but I think that what my experience is that the important piece of community in this and how uh, breaking that isolation is such a critical piece. And I just wonder if you could comment on on that piece of it and how important a recovery network or just general accountability or community is with this with this addiction. I'm happy to. I, I, I've kind of gotten to the place where I don't even like the word accountability. I think it's been watered down. I much rather like the word community. And, you know, biblical community is about opening up. It is about, quote unquote, confessing our faults. And um, the word there isn't sin. I mean, I think it certainly includes that, but faults. Um, and so the healing comes in community. One of the best things individuals experience when they go to a 12 step like program. It's it's like, wow, these are my people, you know, these guys get it. Um, and I people that don't want to go, I said, look, just go breathe the air. Just sit there. Don't say anything. Just breathe the air um, for a number of sessions and or meetings and see what happens, because it is in that community that you heal. One of the things with uh, accountability, guys will get together and they'll say, how you doing? Well, I slipped twice this week. 
Oh, okay. Well, I slipped once too. Well, we just need to pray a little more. And so they get soft on one another um, because they're struggling too. Um, in those groups, they don't get soft on you. They hold themselves to the same standard. And of course, having a sponsor, somebody who's got you know an established um, recovery. And so isolation is one of the biggest issues. In fact, I would say loneliness as a whole is one of the biggest psychological issues that people face. Um, there was one thing in the garden that wasn't good, and that was that man was alone. And so loneliness is a powerful existential, um, but with certainly um, raw reality that people struggle with. And you can be in a crowd and still feel lonely inside when nobody's been into your soul enough to kind of say, yeah, I kind of see everything that's there. And I still love you anyway. You know, you don't, you don't mean any less to me. Um, one of the great verses in Job, I think it's 916, but since I've gotten old, I don't remember the numbers as well as I used to. Um, but Job says to his friends, a man should have the devotion of his friends, even if he walks away from the Almighty. And that is unconditional positive regard, right? That's non-judgmentalism to a key. It doesn't mean you excuse it and let it go, but devotion, commitment to um, embracing is something we all need. The basic human needs we need, and particularly when we're going through a hard time. Yeah, thank you for that. And and. and and you mentioned the garden and, and I want to go back to the garden and because I think that a lot of what drives this addiction and, and Carnes noted this as well is, is shame. And what I call it is that's the jet fuel of the addiction cycle and shame entered the world and it, in the garden, you know, when, when sin, when sin became present, and they, Adam and Eve, were at one point naked and and unashamed. And after sin came in, shame came in with it. And how much of this goes back to that aspect of 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 shame that really has its root roots in the garden? Anything you want to know about basic human functioning can be found in the first three chapters of Genesis. When you really get down to it. Um, and if you look at chapter two, the verse that's often used in um, marriage, verses 24 and 25, that you referenced, that they were naked and not ashamed, that ends chapter two and begins chapter three. But there really isn't a break there. They were naked and unashamed, but the serpent was crafty. And so it's following off of the fact that Satan was going after marriage. And by doing that, he was going after the image of God and sexuality, because how God divided his attributes, the men and women. And so when they ate the fruit, whatever it was, um, they both sinned, right? And so the first thing they experienced was deep shame, core shame, as we call it, toxic shame. And the second thing they experienced was fear. 
or what I think we would say better is the word anxiety. And so they went and hid themselves. And they probably, when they made the clothing, um, to cover them through the fig leaves. And, and we don't know where Eve got the sewing machine there. You know, maybe God provided that like he did a ram in the thicket, but she sewed these things together. They didn't sew uh, leaves over what was the same about them. They sewed it likely over what was different about them because now different was shameful. Different required me to be too vulnerable. And now this is in marriage, this is with the spouse. And so shame is prevalent. And I, you know, in particular, sexual shame is prevalent from the very beginning of the garden. And we see it here. It's like, you know, if people use euphemisms for sexual organs, you know, they just kind of accept it. But if somebody uses the actual clinical term like penis, they get uncomfortable or people can't say the actual words about it because they feel bad. They feel dirty almost in using those words. Well, that's what Satan kind of did. Um, and we don't make up, you know, words for our nose or hands or anything like that because we all have them. But it's only our sexual organs that we are really, really shameful about. And so how do we fig leaf like Adam and Eve did? Those are our defense mechanisms, right? Those are the strategies we use to try to meet our unmet needs. And um, that's really what people bring to us in, as you know, clients. They bring their solutions to their problems. That don't work and haven't worked. And so we got to deal with those to get to the root problem. But yeah, shame is sexual shame is still so prevalent, even in individuals who are wild. You know, you don't think they're shameful, but they actually have deep sexual shame. Um, they seem shameless, but they're not. So I, I wasn't going to do this. Dr. Thomas, you may not know this, but I'm I'm the uh, loud mouth, obnoxiously Catholic counseling student at Liberty. And uh, we can't talk about the garden and not get, you know, but St. John Paul II spent the first five years of his pontificate every Wednesday talking about what is called the theology of the body, in which he talked about the garden experience uh, and, you know, what that means for us. And in the 60s, he wrote a book called Love and Responsibility uh, as a young Polish bishop um, because he was trying to combat the sexual revolution, even as it was occurring in Poland. Um, and the stuff that he wrote was just just monumental. But he had this idea of original nakedness, and I, this ties into the shame piece. And, and this may be more of a theological conversation, but I, I just love to hear how this integrates for us in the counseling realm. This idea that um, before the fall, that there was no shame between man and woman, but by the power of Jesus's uh, crucifixion, death and resurrection, and the salvation that that brings, where are we in relation to, you know, Jesus saying from the beginning, it was not so. When Jesus invites us back to the garden, uh, it's kind of like our final destiny to get back to where it was that we were from, the unity of body and soul, right? The, the perfection of human will, um, 
where does that where does that fit in here in terms of the the therapeutic process and what the goal is like how much of this can we get back to where we were where there was full unity between man and woman and their sexuality that man and woman could look at each other and know one another in peace with an interior gaze of of that nuptial meaning of the body that they possess this ability to relate to one another without fear or or the fear of being used or exploited uh, how, how do we navigate that in the counseling realm about what we believe as Christians, what our final destiny is? Well, um, to make the link from the garden to the cross, I mean, Jesus had to shed the first blood to cover their sin, right, in the garden. And then what is there at the cross? You know, the ultimate shedding of blood. And so the gospel makes some really powerful statements um, Paul said in uh, Galatians, there's no difference between Jew or Gentile. That was huge to the readers. And I think it was Corinth. Um, no, it was Galatians. Um, and then he said, there's no difference between slave or free. Oh my gosh, what are you saying, Paul? You're, you know, you smoking weed or something? And then he blew them even more away. There's no difference between male and female. The Bible actually blows apart in the New Testament our categorization of people. And so when you bring that into a marriage, uh, a man and a woman who feel safe, they can be vulnerable, that brings trust, and they can love and appreciate what's different about them, not just in their bodies which is a significant piece, but also, you know, every other aspect that's different. And so the gospel is about redemption, but it's also about transformation. And couples need work um, most often, even if it seems like they don't have a problem um, with it, it's worth exploring to how they really see the differences between their spouse. Um, and them body-wise. Um, we make fun of, you know, men make have women jokes, women have men jokes. That's all back to the garden. You know, it's playful, but there's kind of a, a truth and a biting in it as well. And so the body has a lot of shame, a lot of shame. And I don't mean to somebody who's out of shape, um, but you can be as fit as possible and still feel inadequate in various ways, which creates sexual dysfunctions. Dr. Thomas, all that is so good. And, and there's so much, so much meat there. Um, and I think we could carry this on for quite some time because it, it goes, it goes so deep. You know, there's the, the spiritual component, there's the physiological component of it. There's the cultural component of it. I mean, it, it is, there's a lot of, of stuff going around this. And, you know, one of the things that I believe in my heart is, is this, this is the problem. This is one of the problems that is ruining marriages, ruining families. And like I said, it doesn't discriminate. And, and this is something you had mentioned, just the amount of, you know, individuals seeking help for this and, and the, I don't want to say lack of resources, but the, the industry kind of playing catch up to it. And I think as more research comes out, especially related to the brain and, and how this, you know, really has the same effect as, as drugs, you know, and, and alcohol in terms of the brain chemistry and, and what happens there. 
And I guess just to wrap up, just more of your opinion, you mentioned about the ICD and, and its classification. As you know, the DSM-5 does not have sexual addiction or compulsive sexual behavior in that as a, as a diagnosis. Do you believe that eventually sexual addiction or some other definition of a compulsive sexual behavior, whatever, ultimately does become part of the DSM? I think probably not. And and the reason is, at, at least as it's uh, expressed with criteria that was established, the, the tendency in DSM-5 was to normalize anything that's alternative. Um, and the distinguishing issue was one of distress. So it might be in there in terms of if it causes you distress about being, you know, hypersexual, then it's treatable, but not seen as a disorder in and of itself, like bipolar, schizophrenia, or any of those other, you know, particular disorders as being just, it's not right, it's aberrant, um, because the world is going towards normalizing what we have always considered aberrant. So, I, I, it might make it in that way, but the way that it should be in there, no, I don't believe it will. Yeah, thank you for that. And looks like we have still have some some ways to go on this topic. And uh, certainly with individuals like yourself leading the way, uh, helping others like myself and Jeff and any of the other counselors listening to that and certainly ITAP and some of those other organizations, I think, I think we see the, the, the problem and uh, certainly those that are out there trying to, to help uh, individuals overcome uh, this, this addiction really. Um, so Dr. Thomas, thank you so much for being with us today. There was so much good information there. And, and certainly I think there might even be some stuff that we want to maybe pick apart uh, in a future episode. So hopefully we can, we can get you on again sometime in the future and, and talk about maybe some other stuff that you have going on. I'd be happy to. Yeah. So thank you on behalf of our chapter, on behalf of Jeff and I for taking the time and, and just investing in uh, in your wisdom and and letting us know from your own experience and also being vulnerable. We appreciate you sharing some of your own your own story with us, and I think that's a valuable thing for our listeners to hear. So thank you so much for that, Jeff. Um, we got a couple more episodes on the on the docket. Do you want to just share what's coming up for us for our listeners? Yeah, bro. So real quick, uh, we have Janae Spencer coming on to talk biofeedback. Uh, we've mentioned that a couple of times. One of those things that we read about, but we don't really learn about how it works, how it integrates with talk therapy. So Dr. Thomas is shaking his head. <laughs> so yeah, looking forward to that. And um, we're also having a buddy of mine who I went to college with a uh, right. long time ago. He is now a clinical psychologist. Uh, he studied at Baylor uh, and he teaches psychology at Franciscan University of Steubenville in Ohio. And uh, we're going to be talking uh, restored in Christ, uh, which we nice. kind of touched on a little bit here today that we can't just pray harder and fast harder. Uh, so what is the integration? And where is the redemption of our Lord in the realm of, yeah, the healing of our minds and bodies, hearts and souls. Uh, so really looking forward to that. Uh, he's a great guy. Uh, so we're, we're pumped for that. And then 
Robert, it's it's about time that you and I interview each other. I mean, especially yeah, after today. I mean, I, I, I kind of threw that out there yeah. a little rope, like, "Hey, people, <laughs> it's coming." So yes, yes. So that'll be uh, that'll be coming soon. We'll make that happen. I think I think it's good for our listeners to to hear us um, chat a little bit. You know, uh, we certainly have uh, know each other's stories, but I think uh, hopefully our listeners find that enjoyable and and informational. Yes. So stay tuned. Yes, yeah, stay tuned. Well, everybody, thank you so much for listening to us again. Dr. Thomas, thank you for being with us today. Be sure to check us out on all of your podcast platforms, iTunes, Google Play, Podbeam, whatever you use. Uh, and also feel free to, to leave us any comments, suggestions for future guests that you think are a topic that you'd like us to hit upon. We're always open for that suggestions. Uh, again, thank you for listening. Have a great day and God bless.